Welcome to another episode of Talking Spirituality, a Glastonbury Abbey podcast. I'm your host, Nick Phillips, and today I'm joined by Dr Lynn Sedgmore, who's chair of the Glastonbury Town Deal Board, steering our government-funded projects to improve Glastonbury, which is just one of her many hats. Hi, Lynn. Hi, nice to be here. here, Nick. Yeah. Thank you. I've invited you on today to talk about the inspiring women of Glastonbury who have helped shape the unique town and steer its spiritual ethos, women from history as well as contemporaries. And I've asked you specifically because of the feminist leadership courses you teach in the spiritual community in Glastonbury, particularly with women. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Some men come as well. Yeah. Um, So we're going to talk about, uh, we'll start off with some historic ones and then we'll take it in turns um, with our modern choices. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, we're going to talk about Alice Buckton. Uh, she was born 1867 and died in 1944. Uh, without her, it's unlikely we'd have the Chaliswell Gardens as it is now. Uh, for those that don't know, it's the site of the Red Spring, an important water source stemming from beneath Glastonbury Tor, and made use of by the medieval monks of the Abbey. It's also now a world peace garden. At the start of the 20th century, Alice came to Glastonbury inspired by tales of a blue bowl thought to be the Grail, and a community of maidens destined to grow around it. She visited Abbey House and thought it would be the ideal place to set up a women's community, but ended up purchasing the Catholic Seminary at Chalice Well in 1913. She was in competition with a wool merchant who wanted to use the spring to power his mill. And she ended up spending 30 years there. Did you hear about that? It's the story of the... Yeah, um, yeah. I think she's the amazing. The auction. Um, they, yeah. It looked like he was going yeah. to... And he didn't arrive on time, isn't it? No, it yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite a sort of yeah, fantastic the train story. train didn't run or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the same thing happened with the auction of the Abbey as well. There was somebody who was trying to get here and they just didn't yeah. get <laughs> the synchronicity Plus of it. magic, meant yeah. to be, yeah. Um, uh, so at the Chalice Well, she converted the monastery building for guests and set up the Tor House Training College for women. And she created a craft school and an art and sacred drama space. Uh, it was something of an in-kind community and she never charged people to watch her theatre productions. Um, she was an advocate for what was at the time pioneering new methods of education, including learning about nature and the arts. And she wrote mystery plays, including one on the life of St. Bridget and her coming to Glastonbury. And she wrote and directed a black and white silent movie, Glastonbury Past and Present, in 1922. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Which I love. <laughs> I just love watching it. It's great, yeah. So um, I found it's on the, the British Film Institute yeah. website and it's in five parts. Um, and she had this cast of like hundreds of costume players <laughs> telling the story of the town and it was really one of the first examples of a promotional film aimed at tourists to encourage them to come to Glastonbury and it's when I first it's like people in Glastonbury love dressing up don't they yeah they always, <laughs> seems they always have <laughs> always have done it's like a real pageant play and a procession yeah and everybody's dressed up and there were so many people in yeah, it yeah yeah it's not just one or two there's like hordes yeah. of people it's in fantastic. it so uh, the first part tells the story of the coming of Joseph of Arimathea, 
but it's also very feminist because it centres around the mother of the tribe who heals an injured boy from a rival tribe and brings their people together. Um, incidentally, Alice was a supporter of women's suffrage, although her views were, they were quite, um, I'd say, gender normative. So she saw men and women as equal, but in their own realms. So, she, so man was the hunter and the explorer and um, looking outwards into the world, whilst uh, a woman was the nourisher and the mother and um, sympathetic to the inner realms. Um, but I think she probably as well viewed herself as mother of her tribe, sort of there at the well, her, her community. So it was kind of... Yeah, I'm sure um, she did. Yeah, but she didn't have children, did she? No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the, the rest of the film, there's a, a section on Alfred the Great. There's the visit of King Edward III and Queen Philippa to the Abbey to see the remains of Arthur and Guinevere. Um, there's Glastonbury in the Elizabethan times. And then finally, the 1920s, with lots of shots of locations around the town, such as the Abbey, uh, Georgian Pilgrim, the Abbey Barn at the Royal Life Museum, and the Gateway to Abbey House. Uh, Alice was a Christian, but she was also interested in Baha'i and in esoteric mysteries. Um, so the sort of thing that was resurfacing at the start of the 20th century. Well, they also had a direct link with Baha'u'llah, because mm -hmm. I think it was Tudor Pole was um, very instrumental in getting him released from prison. Oh, okay. So they built the link, and that link's still there. Yeah. I think the son, the grandson, um, occasionally visits the well. So there's oh, an interesting right. connection with uh, the Baha'is. Yeah. She was um, also something of an entrepreneur. She set up a hostel and a tea room in the Fairfield and a shop um, in, near the market cross in the town where she sold items that were made at the well. Um, she planned to create a trust for Chalice Well, but she was unable to do so in her lifetime. Um, her vision was taken up by her friend Wellesley Tudor Pole mm -hmm. after her death and um, created the charity which still cares for the gardens today. Um, it's another site that brings people all over the world to visit Glastonbury. Um, another thing she was also instrumental in was getting the National Trust to purchase and preserve the tour. Yeah, yeah. She had some little pilgrimage uh, hut or something for the pilgrims. So yeah. she was really centred around pilgrims and servicing pilgrims as well as yeah. women's education. Yeah. I mean, she was a kind of renaissance woman, wasn't she? She had a lot of different interests and mm -hmm. skills from sacred drama through to, you know, serving pilgrims. I think what she didn't have was financial acumen and business yeah. acumen, which is what Tudor Pole stepped in with yeah. um, to set up the trust and everything, yeah. And there's also, um, there's a memorial to her inside St John's Church. Yeah. 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 Uh, next up, I've got Violet May Firth. Uh, born in 1890 in North Wales, better known as Dion Fortune. Yeah. Um, she was uh, one of the leading occultists of her day, and her pen name apparently comes from the family motto, Deo non fortuna, God not luck. Uh, she was interested in psychotherapy and the works of Freud and Jung. Um, she was also an early advocate for soya milk. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, Interesting fact. Yeah. Uh, whilst studying in London, she started attending lectures given by the Theosophical Society, and she later joined them and a couple of other London occult groups. 
1921, after learning transmediumship, she came to Glastonbury and met with Frederick Bly Bond, who was the then commissioned archaeologist of the Abbey. Through trance, they came up with the theory that the Abbey site had been founded by Druids. Back in London, um, she cut ties with the, with the other groups that she was part of and founded her own occult group named the Community of the Inner Light. And in 1924, she purchased an orchard at the foot of the tour, just opposite Alice Buckton at Chalicewell Gardens. And um, at Chalice Orchard, she established a guest house where she herself stayed because um, she didn't live full-time in Glastonbury. Mm. So I think that's the, the place it used to be, Geoffrey Ash's house on the side okay. of the tour there, as, as you go up yeah. from the slope. Uh, she published many articles through her Inner Light magazine and she authored several books on occult topics. Uh, some of them took the form of novels, such as The Sea Priestess, um, but nevertheless, she, she put ritual information in there and some say sort of autobiographical details of her life into the storyline. Uh, during World War II, she, became, um, she began preparing for the dawn of the Aquarian Age and she channeled messages um, that uh, took on the form of the Arthurian mysteries, which she linked to the mythical sunken island of Atlantis. And all of this and her earlier work um, proved inspiring for later neo-pagan movements in and outside of Glastonbury and her books are still a staple in all of the, the bookshops in the town today. Yeah, she's probably more well-known, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I always remember reading her, is it the Glastonbury one, the very thin little Glastonbury one, mm-hmm. and, and just where she says, you know, you can look at Glastonbury through a historical lens mm-hmm. or a mythical lens or a mystical spiritual yeah. lens and that's obvious in one way but that was quite that really illuminated me yeah. I thought oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so um she's not described as a feminist um, I think she was more interested in spiritual empowerment yeah. Yeah. um uh, all of her novels um revolve around a priestess figure who initiates others and as we say it may well have been based upon herself yeah, and then that goddess energy has been around in Glastonbury for a long time, really, hasn't it? Through different people, yeah. Yeah. Um, it feels prudent to say that her, her views on um, race and sex in some of these old books mm, is not yeah. what you'd call inspiring for today. It's yeah. of its time. Yeah. Um, and she subscribed to uh, racial religious views about indigenous traditions and not mm, being shared between yeah. different cultures. So I think you have to read them as... Kind of a part of their time and not yeah and they were wealthy these people yeah. they often had inherited wealth didn't they as yeah. well as they couldn't have been doing um a lot of what they were doing because mm. they had wealth and they had time <laughs> they weren't having to do a full-time job no <laughs> yeah um so as i said she didn't live full-time in glastonbury but her um body is buried here she died in glastonbury and her grave is a, a bit of a pilgrimage site for um, young esotericists, and they yeah. uh, come and, and visit her. Um, and her theories have influenced Wicca and the, the goddess movement. Um, and she, she also kind of popularised that concept that the veil is thin in Glastonbury. I think you hear that a lot today, but I think she was probably one of the first people to sort of put that into words. Um, so yeah, like like Alice Buckton did with the film, she kind of painted this vivid picture of a, a mystical Glastonbury 
in her books um, and, and continues to draw people here today. Yeah. Right, next up, I've got uh, Catherine Maltwood. Um, she was born in 1878 in London. Um, Catherine was an artist and, like the contemporaries we've already mentioned, interested in esoteric mysteries and uh, theosophy, as well as Buddhism and Egyptology. She also had an interest in the Arthurian legends and the Grail cycle, uh, which once again, um, those were becoming popular in the Victorian era. And she as well didn't live in Glastonbury, but she spent her summers here, as you were saying, nice, uh, <laughs> nice way to live. Um, she stayed at the Priory, um, which is that building on the road to Bridgewater, sort of gothic looking. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yes, I know. Yeah. The, I've not been in, but I know where you mean. The Priory. It's got yeah. little sort of um, yeah, it looks amazing. Crenellated. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she stayed there, and that's where she was working on illustrations for an Arthurian romance when she came up. Um, when she was sort of became convinced that you could see a vast zodiac sketched out on the landscape of of Glastonbury. Um, and the figures of this zodiac, they don't necessarily match the traditional ones. So, um, for, for instance, Cancer was a boat instead of a crab, and Aquarius was a phoenix, um, but she had reasons behind all of her choices. Uh, these figures followed the lines of roads, waterways, banks and ditches, um, not only corresponding to the signs of the zodiac, but she assigned them to the Knights of the Round Table as well, and um, so you could tell the story of the Arthurian legend. And this, of course, inspired many others in later years. And her theory was recirculated and repopularised in the 1960s after her death and led to other interpretations of the Glastonbury geography in sacred terms, as well as several other topographical zodiacs in other towns. I've seen people have sort of taken this idea and applied it, applied it elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so in her theory that these shapes were designed... Um, into the landscape by people 5,000 years ago but it's been pretty much discredited by archaeologists because they're saying a lot of this is based upon roads that are only like 200 years old. Um, I'd say though that this doesn't mean she wasn't important in awakening the imagination of the, mm. the wider public to the Glastonbury legends and um, what they could signify to people. I'd say it's a bit like um, you know when you see shapes in the clouds or yeah. in a piece of toast you know if you're um it's your mind interpreting shapes and symbols um you know what what is the reason for that what does that shape mean to you if you see the shape of a dog in the landscape why is why is that and so it can be a perfectly valid form of divination without having to go into the who put these symbols yeah. yeah, I agree. I've got an interesting story about that, though. I'd never heard of the Zodiac, her Zodiac, oh, really? when I moved here. I it's kind of it's another one you find in all the bookshops. That's yeah, still no, there. no, but so I live in Barton St. David, mm -hmm. and when we got there, I've never worked with doves or anything like that. So when we move in, I'm like, oh, I think we should call this Dove Chapel. Mm. Oh, why am I thinking that? <laughs> um, I've got nothing to do with doves. And then dove energies all around me. And then I come into Glastonbury and I see there was a book open or something. Yeah. The, 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 and we live in the dove of her. 
So she's probably going to lose all my credibility now with anybody who's listening. But it was quite an extraordinary experience. It's like I couldn't, I didn't know. And then I'm like, oh, we live in the Dove. And there's a very peaceful energy out there that I've always felt. So people probably like, oh, gosh, Lynn's a bit bonkers here. But (laughs) I couldn't have known it because I, and I hadn't seen it. But it's like, that's the Dove connection. Um, So then I bought her book. I bought the, the big book and read it Mm. um it doesn't do it for me Mm. because i'm not particularly interested in astrology either Mm. but it was just that connection with me feeling dove energy (laughs) and then discovering that's that's where we are in her zodiac yeah so even though like it may have all been sort of her own projections onto the landscape it certainly helped to put glastonbury on the map in sort of the new age movement of the 60s and 70s um and you know again that you still find copies of the book today yeah, all yeah, the time yeah. in Glastonbury okay so that's our sort of historical women so yeah. we're now going to take it in turn so hand over to you yeah so I'm uh, interested in the women who were uh, I'm interested in them as well but the women who were still living and I want to start with Kathy Jones who's now in her late 70s and has lived in Glastonbury for over 30 years Um, So she's had a huge influence. I mean, in a nutshell, she's created, co-created the largest goddess community in the world Mm -hmm. that's here in Glastonbury. There are temples in other places, but there isn't such a large community. And I would also say that Cathy, uh, with the support of Mike Jones, has got a very clever and um, it's successful Uh, business Mm. underpinning Mm -hmm. which some of these other women didn't have Mm. I think if you bought I wouldn't know I'm a working class kid of a council estate (laughs) if you're born into money perhaps you don't have to manage your money um, to the same extent that if you haven't got very much Um, so I am I have gone through the priestess of Avalon training uh, and so what Cathy's done is created a particular lineage Mm -hmm. of a goddess um, lineage that is seeped in and out of the Glastonbury land it's you know she she draws um, pictures um, not the same as the zodiac but she has images of how goddess is in the land yeah because goddess spirituality, spirituality, particularly neo-pagan goddess spirituality, is spirituality of the earth, yeah. of the land. So why I um, want to name her is because, similar to these other women, she's a visionary, she's mm-hmm. a pioneer, um, she's a writer, a healer. She too started with sacred drama, so mm-hmm. there's a similarity yeah. with Alice there. And, and founder of the Lady of Avalon goddess tradition. Um, so she's a second wave feminist um, as am I Um, so her that goddess spirituality kind of grew the new goddess spirituality out of feminist spirituality Mm. which was saying how can we relate to spirituality religion through a lens where god isn't male Mm -hmm. (laughs) purely male so for me and other women of that time co-creating, developing, exploring goddess spirituality is a radical feminist disruptive act Mm -hmm. because it's a significant thing to do to say, hey, perhaps God isn't male, Mm -hmm. you know? And yes, 
you can go to the beyond gender, which as a mystic I can do and many other spiritual writers do, but there's something about locating this sacred image in into the female, which is what Kathy mm. has been preoccupied with mm-hmm. and has done for many years. She's, she's had a lot of criticism, as I suspect these other women did. Um, she's had backlashes um, because people um, kind of struggle sometimes to, to see something that different. But she's set up the first licensed goddess temple in modern times yeah. where there can literally be, it's not just a place of uh, quiet or worship, but you can do legal hand fast, so you yeah. can legally get married there. Dawn Kinsella was uh, key in doing that as well. And that's quite remarkable. She's established a wide range of priestess and priest trainings. I think uh, uh, sometimes she's got about 10 trainings going through the temple. Um, and the Lady of Avalon priestess training has been going, you know, for I think about 20. 25 plus years the goddess conference has been going i think it's just celebrated its 28th anniversary and she was the founder of that Uh, mariana katinka are now leading on that but she was the founder kathy was the founder um she's also got um, and established the goddess house which is an education and healing center so if you look at the kind of what these women are all interested in, it's all across education, mm. a different kind of spirituality, um, serving the community in different ways. Um, so the community holds regular goddess ceremonies. Um, there's also Goddess Hall. They bought yeah. the... Um, the it was a I think Some a church, church hall, hall yeah. behind St Benedict's and they, they use that for ceremonies and training so she hasn't kind of got land per se but she's kind of more in a modern thing of that she's created activities I mean mm. there's an economy for priestesses and yeah. priests to come here and earn a living yeah that's what she's done um, and it's not just Kathy I could name a hundred mm. other women um, who um, have, have, have gone along the way. Um, but Kathy's remained um, steadfast. She's now currently uh, stepping back uh, mm-hmm. as best she can, but she's still teaching. Um, there's the Mother World Party, and at one time there was the Mother World Political Party. Um, I, I should have counted how many books. I think she's written five. Yeah at least five about different aspects of the land and goddess and the Lady of Avalon path. Um, so in that sense, I think she's made a huge contribution. Mm. Um, there are lots of other women who have um, made their contribution along the way. You don't develop this alone, but she was the founder and it's her vision that keeps going. Um, and as with any community, there are positive things happen and um, communities split and have differences, but that's that's everywhere. What I think she's done is persevered against all the odds with a renewed uh, vision of a spiritual, particular spiritual path. And mm-hmm. she's definitely put Clastonbury on the map. Well, yeah, there's so many of the people who visit here come because it's synonymous with goddess yeah. movement. 
Yeah. You know, they're besides the people you know who come yeah. to see the the early Christian foundation or the King Arthur's, yeah. so many people are Glastonbury yeah. is the place of the goddess. Yeah, and yeah, and no it brings it wouldn't be and it brings money. The, the spiritual economy yes. that the goddess community contributes into the town, and there is now the Avalon Temple as well as the Glastonbury Goddess Temple. You've got yeah. other. You know, people who then focus on Magdalene tradition, or Rhiannon, yeah. or Bridget, or Carridway, as well, that have expanded. People yeah. have set up goddess temples inspired by yes, all over here. the world. Yeah, yeah, and you've got you know different uh, people with temples here that are developing, and if you think of how much B and B money, and you know, using the town for buying gifts or having food that thousands of people come on these trainings mm-hmm. into the goddess conference yeah. yeah so she's making a contribution in different ways but as i say and kathy herself if she was here would want to acknowledge that it's not just her but mm-hmm. it is her vision initially and um there have been hundreds and hundreds of different men and women involved often giving of their time for nothing mm-hmm. as well yeah Okay, um, so my next one is going to be Arabella Churchill, who I didn't know so much about before, but I, I was quite interested to read about. Um, so her impact on the town has been more through her charity work and through being one of the founders of Glastonbury Festival. Um, she was born in 1949 and had a rather famous grandfather, uh, former uh, Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill. Oh, right. Um, however, she wasn't really interested in all the, the high society and debutante balls and the like. Um, instead, she ended up at the age of 22 in a field on Worthy Farm in Somerset, um, helping to set up the first full-scale festival of 1971 um, with her father's personal assistant, Andrew Kerr. Um, and Arabella funded the construction of the, the very first pyramid stage, and the location of that was doused out by um, Kerr to correspond with the ley line that was said to run between Glastonbury and Stonehenge, so the the St Michael ley line. And um, she was responsible for the the festival's return in 1979, themed around the Year of the Child, and was the the genesis of the the festival circus and theatre areas, which she continued to manage over the coming years and which is still a staple of the festival today. And it also led to the inception of her charity Children's World, which puts on workshops to encourage children's creativity. We've actually got one here downstairs today oh, happening. Nice. Yeah, nice. Um, Arabella lived in Glastonbury and in later life became a Buddhist through the teachings of uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, author of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And she seems to have been quite a private person, preferring to stay out of the limelight. So I wasn't able to discover how active she was in the local Buddhist Mm -hmm. community. Um, Sadly, she died of pancreatic cancer in 2007, aged 58. And tribute was paid to her at the 2008 festival. And then in uh, June 2010, there was an official opening of a stone bridge dedicated to her, which leads to the circus and theatre fields in at the festival and there's a set of um, uh, five Tibetan prayer wheels which reflect her devotion to Buddhism 
and I found a quote from her apparently um, to her friends as she was dying. She said, not really too worried about the actual dying bit, luckily. And please don't you be worried or sad either. Better this way for the soul than being run over by a big red bus in a temper, <laughs> completely unprepared. <laughs> She sounds quite a bit of a character. Truth in that, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, shall I? Yeah. I tell you what's interesting about the women that you're talking about, and the mm-hmm. women that I've chosen, mm-hmm. is these are all from wealthy backgrounds. Mm. And the women I'm talking about have mm. had to earn a living as well as make contributions. So I want to go on to Morgana West. But before I do that, I need to mention Elizabeth Than, who um, was the person who had a vision for a pilgrim reception centre in Glastonbury, um, probably about 20 years ago now, might be 15 years ago now. Mm. And so it was her vision, and in the same way that Tudor Pole brought in the business acumen for Glad Chalice Well, her husband, Barry Taylor, set up the Glaston Centre as a vehicle through which, Mm. because both Tudor Pole and Barry were businessmen, successful businessmen, who also came to Glastonbury. So what Morgana West, um, she was the person that they appointed as the director to bring into being the Pilgrim Reception Centre. Um, I first met Morgana. Morgana's now in her early 60s. Uh, Unfortunately, she's really quite poorly, so she's had to withdraw from a lot Mm. of things, but she's a granny and and having a lovely uh, personal life. So I met her in 2012 when she had instigated the Unity event Mm -hmm. where there was a pilgrimage... um, and which culminated in, in about 60 or 70 different faith traditions being together in the Chalice Well yeah. as the culmination. So that was my first introduction to the Pilgrim Reception Centre and Morgana, and I was very, very impressed. And my husband, John Capra, and myself have remained involved as volunteers or as trustees yeah. of the Pilgrim Reception Centre stroke Glaston Centre for the last 12 years or so, mm. uh, but more in the background. Um, Morgana also founded the Unity Candle. So Morgana and, and Elizabeth's vision was very much about what's a spiritual unity across Glastonbury. Mm. Glastonbury is tribal. It is quite yeah. tribal. Um, and I think Glastonbury was in survival mode for a lot, where a lot of the communities and the different groups didn't have a lot of money. So they were having to focus on survival, literally. Right. So you you don't do a lot of collaboration when mm. you're having to focus on making your own bit kind of work. So the Glaston Centre and the Pilgrim Reception Centre were about how can we have spiritual unity. And Morgana founded the Unity Candle, which is still going strong. Mm. It's uh, Irina um, is currently doing that. She worked with Morgana for a while. So she's now the candle keeper. And it goes to spiritual events when invited. It's also lit at civic events. The town council have taken that on board. And people can buy the Unity Candle from the the Glastonbury Information Centre, which houses the Pilgrim Reception Centre. And it's all about having time to think about unity. Irina is also overseeing the Silent Minute, so there is an online through Facebook silent minute. Okay. 
um, which is similar to but not the same as the silent minute that Tudor pole mm. or, um, but they have their own website to do that um, and she she did that until last year so she's been doing that for 15 years so again someone else who devoted her whole life and spirit and energy um, sometimes their sanity maybe mm-hmm. um, and I mean that in a positive sense because <laughs> there's lots of challenges to this but she stayed with it she devoted her time to it she you know until she was too poorly to carry on and I have huge admiration um, she had a vision for a song for Glastonbury which we developed together into the Avalon Anthem which there are two versions that you can get online. So that was instigated by her. Um, She was always determined, very, very kind, well-connected. So Morgana, at the height of her influence in Glastonbury, everybody knew who she was. Mm -hmm. She was on lots of different committees. She was had all sorts of different ideas um, for the Pilgrim Reception Centre because it always struggled Mm -hmm. financially. It wasn't easy. Delighted to say that when the town deal came in, Morgana, myself and William Bloom, and then people like Ian Tucker and Liz Latham worked together, Gerard Tucker, on the Glastonbury Way. Because part of our vision for the PRC was to have a pilgrim route. Mm -hmm. So what we've got now is the Glastonbury Way, which the town deal funded. But lots, there were about 12 people who gave so much time to make that happen. And it came together in a very short space of time, didn't it? It was about four or five months. (laughs) And we worked out that there was about 200,000 worth of volunteer time went into that. So, So that whole emphasis, again, of spirituality. But I think the difference in Morgana and Elizabeth Fan's focus was the unity Mm-hmm. Not not espousing a particular approach, but saying how can we bring together um, all different faiths and traditions. I'm still a trustee on the PRC, and we've got eight trustees now. And this October the 15th, we will be running a new Unity event. Last year, we ran a pilgrimage event, which mm-hmm. you spoke at, yeah. which was very successful. So the PRC is still focusing on Unity and mm-hmm. pilgrimage in the town. Yeah. And Morgana made that happen from yes. that initial vision. And also the success of the, the centre. I mean, it used to be tucked away, kind of quite hard to find, but it's now, you know, prominent shares the, the building with the, the main tourist yeah. information. So you can see how um, more important it's become. Yeah, how valued and, it is. Yeah. And, that, and I must pay credit to the Town Council for that because yeah. the Town Council have been incredibly supportive. I think they, well, they do see and value because Glastonbury isn't just a tourist town. Mm. It's a pilgrimage centre. Yeah. It has a deep, deep spirituality. It has sacred landscapes. So they see the value and the importance of mm. that. And we're very grateful to them for the extraordinary, beautiful building that we're all in. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so... Next, I'm going to talk about um, Janet Bell, MBE, who's the director of Glastonbury Abbey. Um, Janet's originally from Manchester, and uh, she joined Glastonbury Abbey in 2009 in a curatorial position. Um, Previously, she worked as an access consultant in museums. Um, and she took over as acting director in um, 2013 and soon became permanent in the role. 
and she spent the the last 10 years steering the Abbey through an immense uh, amount of change and improvement. Uh, She's overseen the expansion of teams and departments, um, such as the learning and events, which have all grown. Um, She's completed major conservation projects, um, or rather we've completed major conservation projects thanks to the great amount of effort put in um, by Janet to, into writing successful funding applications and uh, driving the, the Rescue Our Ruins public fundraising campaign, as well as the recent um, successful funding bids for our Piazza project. Um, Janet's also worked hard to improve the interpretation of the ruins through the introduction of an interpretation strategy in 2012, um, and uh, that's something that we're renewing currently. She worked with Professor Roberta Gilchrist and Cheryl Green on the publication of the entire 20th century archaeological record at the Abbey and making this knowledge accessible to audiences through projects um, to create resources like the guidebook, the touchscreens in the museum, the, um, the AR app. Um, I'm, I'm sure Janet would say it's all a team effort, but every ship needs someone to steer it. Um, and she's also been responsible for what I think would be a shift in the attitudes to spirituality and extending the welcome of the Abbey to people of all beliefs. Uh, I think previously the tone was perhaps a bit more cautious, um, but also it's only in the last sort of 15, 20 years that um, we've seen an upturn in visitors of different faiths coming to, to mm. the Abbey. Um, this, is, this is from speaking to people who've worked here for 20 plus years. They've seen mm. sort of the, the direction that it's uh, gone in since the late 90s. Um, again, that goes hand in hand with information available on the internet. So yeah. it's a growing, um, of growing interest. And I think um, Janet recognised that. And um, she's overseen projects like um, we had a wishing tree and a willow lady in the orchard, um, sort, of a, sort of community focus. Um, we had a temporary labyrinth um, when the St John's labyrinth was closed, um, when they were having their, going through their mm-hmm. funding bid. Um, and the introduction of multi-faith resources like our meditation trail. Uh, she's also championed the creation of a sacred space, which is going to be um, constructed later this oh, year. Um, and she's chosen some of the events for Abbey House that have uh, speak to more of a spiritual air, but an unspecified one. So it's welcome to everyone, such as um, Patrick Duff's series of sound meditations and the... Um, Somerset Art Weeks exhibition, which we had last year on, on pilgrimage. So, yeah, I think... Um, great. Yeah, Very a great, A great um, direction. Well, I used to come here in the 1990s because I'm a Benedictine oblate at a <laughs> monastery. So I used to be here in the early 1990s um, with Esther DeWall doing uh, Benedictine spirituality <laughs> retreats. So, yeah, it is much more open, I think, mm. and accessible. Um, and such a beautiful place, such an beautiful environment. Yeah, yes, yes a, a great director to work for. Yeah, <laughs> and she's doing grand on the um, Town Deal project. Yeah. We're delighted uh, with the progress on that. So yeah, that's great. So then I've got Indra Don Francesco. She's the current mayor of Glastonbury, Green Mayor of Glastonbury. Um, She lived in Glastonbury as a child um, within the traveller community um, and then left and has been uh, 
really successful activist in very, very many ways. Um, she has done my two-year luminary course mm -hmm. and I brought her in several times to help with the teaching on the activism mm -hmm. because there's nobody more experienced or skillful as an activist than Indra over many, many, many years on, on many different campaigns. And then she's returned uh, to Glastonbury several years ago as an adult and, and listening to her talking uh, the other week, uh, she talks about returning to reclaim her community mm -hmm. and to be of service back into the community. So what she is doing now in this, um, she's obviously a councillor, but in this leadership role, She's really trying to lead from a feminist and a leaderful cooperative manner um, as mayor of Glastonbury. And she's ruffling some feathers, or shall I say some feathers are being ruffled. Um, but I'm, I'm totally supportive of, of what she's attempting to do. She has an amazingly good heart and she is doing, uh, her charities are to support women women who are disadvantaged or helping women with self-defense to protect themselves and or green issues mm -hmm. and i know the, the the green control town council now has set up a resilience committee and they're really focusing on climate issues which i think are really important mm -hmm. as as is the town deal she's also vice chair of the red brick board um, and is doing um, significant inputs there as the Red Brick, you know, because Red Brick have had, you know, nearly four million uh, mm -hmm. investments. So, so they're enhancing their governance procedures and their ways of functioning as organisations. So she's involved in that. I know she's looking at different ways of developing um, houses and living. Mm, that are important. more innovative and radical for people who can't afford traditional mm. bricks and mortar houses. So she's got lots and lots of innovative ideas. She's got lots of energy and she's beginning to have a huge influence in the town. <clears throat> and I think what she's modelling um, is a very different way of leading or she's doing her best to model. Now that is going to get some people kind of what's this about but my hope is by the end of her um, year in office people will begin to work together more collaboratively um, and constructively. So I have huge time uh, for Indra and I am really curious. Again, this is a woman who does not come from a wealthy background. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I'm, I have an affinity with that because I'm the same. Um, and who do tremendous work, morning, noon and night, uh, to support and to be of service. These are all, the women I've chosen um, are all women who have a great a huge sense of service and wanting to give back mm. um, and a passion for education and development uh, and for other women, but also for men wanting yeah. to see, uh, you know, uh, Glastonbury to thrive. What's the, you know, may Glastonbury flourish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely and a common theme through, through all of yeah. these. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, can I just name people like Susie Quatermass, who set up the Goddess Temple gift shop, Tanya Dawson, who founded Paddington Farm, Lisa Hannah Webster, who did the Arimathean Centre, Liz Lasham, who's a local councillor, whose mother uh, was an artist, and they set up the Mural Trail. Mm. And I could go on and <laughs> I think, you know, the, you asked me to choose three, which is really hard. <laughs> Um, but there are so many women in this town who are deeply committed, councillors and others of every political hue, who are giving their everything to yeah. to make Glastonbury flourish in whatever way. Wonderful. So I've got one more person on my list. That's uh, Dr. Lynn Sedgemore. Oh, God. <laughs> Such a surprise. Did you see that coming? Oh, uh, let's talk about you. Yeah. Um, so here's some facts that I've learned from your website. Okay. You taught and led in further education for 36 years. I did. You were a successful chief executive for 17 years in three different organisations. Previous roles include chief executive of the 157 Group, chief executive of the National Centre for Excellence in Leadership, principal of Guildford College, dean of Croydon Business School, um, advised the Further Education Skills Minister on extremisms and sat yeah. on the Prime Minister's National Review of Public yeah. Sector Leadership. That's a lot of stuff to do. I one, loved one my time, time in FE. <laughs> I loved my time in Further Education. I I was in my element. It was my place, yeah. My service, yeah. Um, you were awarded the CBE in 2004, um, named one of Dubrette's 500 most influential people in the UK And in that was amazing, I didn't see that coming, yeah. One of the UK 100 Women of Spirit in 2016. Uh, your organisations have won numerous national and international awards, including the International Spirit at Work Award and the British Diversity Award. Um, which of these are you most proud of? Both. <laughs> because one is spirituality. I mean, from all of the awards. Oh, all of the... Oh, uh, do you know what? They're a means to an end for me. Mm-hmm. They don't matter. And so, okay. um, to be honest, if I wasn't from a working class background and my mum and dad would have been so proud, I'd have turned the CBE down, if I'm honest, because <laughs> I don't believe in any of all that stuff. <laughs> but it's useful, and I use it in service of other people. Yeah. I'm mo- I'll tell you what I'm most proud of, which that doesn't say, is the student successes that were achieved because of me mm. and my team. So it's always a we. Yeah. So, for example, at Guildford, when I went there, the student pass rate was 48. And when I left, it was 86. Wow. Yeah. Retention was 90%. But, you know, we got that down to 84. But to have a pass rate of 86 and retention of 84. Mm. It's the students. It's like, how are they succeeding? It's All of that's nice. But Mm. it's what impact are you having on student success, on student outcome? You know, and I'm still I still teach us. I still love teaching. Yeah. So you were, you've also been non-executive director of 25 boards <laughs> in a wide range of sectors. Um, currently advisor to Capilor Horizons Charity, yeah. uh, director of the Glaston Centre, as we've mentioned, yeah. and board member of Glastonbury Town Deal. Yeah. And we've also mentioned already the, the Glastonbury Way, um, yeah. which is you were instrumental in setting up. Um, and... Uh, of course, you're now the, the chair of the of the town deal yeah. board, um, which oversees the grant from the government's levelling up fund, um, how that's spent locally. 
Um, of course, one of those projects is the, the Abu Piazza, which yeah. is designed to open up the entrance into a large community space. Are you excited to see the outcome for that oh, next year? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Hopefully next summer. I think you're going to be one of the first, aren't you? And mm-hmm. then it'll be St. Dunstan's. We've got 11 yeah. projects. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited about all of them because they really are going to make a difference to the town. Mm. But the key, because these are capital projects, capital monies, the key is they're a means to an end. Yeah. How do they get used by the community and for the projects to you know, get sufficient funding and, and wherewithal into the future mm. to make mm. those buildings sing, really? Yeah. That's what I'm mostly you know, mm. want to see happen. Yeah. 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 Um, you also say um, that you've been a spiritual seeker all my life and have tra- yeah. travelled an unusual synthesis in my spiritual and professional <laughs> life. Trained as an interfaith minister and as a priestess within the Avalonian tradition. And as you mentioned earlier about uh, you're a Benedictine oblate. Yeah. Um, and that you, you brought um, people here for quiet days to Abbey House before. I did. I love doing that. Yeah, I did it on Benedictine spirituality, on kind of um, open-hearted centred prayer, on Richard Rawls' work. When do you have the time to do that? <laughs> you know, and then the next thing you say is, do you ever sleep? Like, yeah. Yes, I really do. I need my sleep. I'm fast. I'm just fast. <laughs> it's really hard to explain. <laughs> I've also written two books since then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're... you're as as I think people have picked up, you're connected to the the Glastonbury Goddess community, and you've yeah. um, led courses here, um, such as the Goddess Luminary Leadership Wheel. Yeah. Um, can you tell people what that involves? What what a luminary is? Yeah. What I've done, uh, I've had years of mainstream leadership. Yeah, at every mm-hmm, level. Mm-hmm. Um, I also ran a national leadership centre for four years, which had forty thousand leaders come through. So what I've done, I used to teach Soul of Leadership with Margaret Benefield. That was her course. I've taken all the mainstream that I know, the good mm. stuff, and then taken goddess spirituality and combined them into mm. a leadership program because no one else had ever done that. No. <laughs> I like being right on the edge of something new. And that's why I could have done it through any lens, but mm. I did it through that. Um, and it's the book has sold really well. I've been running the course for four years. I'm having a break. Mm-hmm. because I'm just finishing another book, mm-hmm. which is Presence Activism, an Antidote to Climate Anxiety. So that will be out next year. I'm just literally, I should get the final cover version today. And then I'm starting another book, which is Goddess Enneagram. I've just signed a contract to do that. Um, and I've got another book up my sleeve as well. I, I know what that's like. They're bubbling away in the background. I know, I can't like, oh, not, stop not another book. <laughs> And I'm likely to go on another two boards as well. <laughs> so that's me in retirement. But I do feel retired because when I was doing a full-time job, I was also doing a doctorate because I did my doctorate in 2013. <laughs> and I was building... I wasn't building it myself. I had a house being built. Mm-hmm. I think I've always been a bit like this. <laughs> always. But presence, because my spirituality is really mm-hmm. important to me. So how do I keep calm and not stressed? Through being present. Yeah. So I was actually going to ask about about the new book, if you're allowed to speak about that. Um, yeah. That's I'm, I'm re- reviewing it for you at the moment. Yes. So I'm so I'm uh, just reading about presence and what that's about. Can you kind of explain a little? Yeah. Um, I've explored lots of different faith traditions. I, I am somebody who believes in the perennial wisdom that it's kind of there is one source that we are all moving towards or experiencing we may have different views on it you know the jane um you know that non-violence and that kind of we've all got elements of the truth so instead of saying god or source or goddess i'm using presence Mm. which is that sense of something 
I think my contribution to the field on presence is that I'm, I've tracked presence from in, you know, professional presence mm. right through to spiritual, mystical kinds of presence. Um, because so again, you're applying everything you've done in the professional yeah. sectors to you know, spiritual. Yeah. And I think this is, this is my laying my own spirituality uh, you know, out in public. Mm. I kind of did that in Goddess Luminary, but this is very clear and explicit because mm. I'm essentially a mystic, I think, and go beyond the structures of religion mm. and, and like them and respect them. Mm. So presence is, what is that sense you have, if it's transpersonal, transpersonal presence, of something more than? Mm. And ultimately it gives us access to the essences, you know, call it the fruits of the spirit, if you like, of peace resilience, strength, joy, you know, that it's how do we access a sense of real contentment. And quite importantly, you're showing people how to apply that to the climate crisis and all the worries that you might feel about that. Yeah, I, I thought, oh, I could write a book on presence, but there's lots of books on presence. Mm. How do I bring it into the modern age? Because I'm, I'm a doer as well. How do I apply <laughs> it say. to something? <laughs> how do you apply it to something? And it's like climate anxiety because mm. I've got grandchildren mm. who suffer from I mean kids today really suffer from anxiety in a way yeah. and so yes I, I'm, I'm, I'm offering my own understanding of presence but I've created a model of how do you cope with presence anxiety, uh, climate anxiety through presence yeah. it's had amazing endorsements yeah I, so I see them. <laughs> I'm like Right, really. So I'm really quite humbled by that. So I think I'm on to something. You know, when you hit a kind of, a, a, this is relevant. Mm. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed, Excellent. it'll do well. Yeah. I look forward to seeing that out there in the world. Yeah. Thank you for uh, being a guest today and talking about all these amazing women. Yeah. Glastonbury's really fortunate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there'll be more to come. There'll be youngsters who are just about kind of stepping into their power and strength yeah. so yeah i look forward to them wonderful thank you thank you this has been a glastonbury abbey podcast glastonbury abbey is an independent charity you can support us by visiting the abbey becoming a member or donating via our website glastonburyabbey.com mm-hmm.